Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, this podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge, where we look at geopolitical issues in a historical context. I'm Suzanne Rain and I'm joined, as usual, by Ali Ansari. Today, we're going to talk about summits. You may have noticed this year there have been a whole load of summits, G7, the COP28, the G20, and you might be forgiven for asking what they're all for, given that so far none of them seem to have actually resolved all the multiple difficult issues that we're dealing with at the moment. So we've invited to join us today Dr Tristan Naylor, who's Assistant Professor in History and Politics at Cambridge and is an expert in international summits and diplomacy. So who better to answer all our questions? Ali, if it's all right, I'm going to start with the first question. You, you fire off. Um, Tristan, is there a definition of what is a summit? Well, first and foremost, thanks for uh, for having me. I'm always happy to talk about international summits, perhaps more than is is healthy to. Um, as for for the definition of of what is a summit, there's no real sort of single settled definition. But the way that I tend to think about it is that it is a meeting of those who are at the apex, at the very top of their political hierarchies. So, prime ministers and presidents and monarchs, basically those who answer to nobody uh, figuratively above them. That is what really is at the core of summitry. Obviously, this is a sort of silly question, but who invented them? Is there a point where they started to call that kind of meetings summits? Well, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a silly question at all. We have, certainly in, in the historical record or historical records, we have lots of examples of summitry, lots of examples you know, throughout antiquity of those at the apex, at the top of their political hierarchies, meeting, just thinking of the, the, the British context, something like the in the Middle Ages, the Field of Cloth of Gold, the sort of now infamous meeting between Henry VIII and Francois I, that's often regarded as a, a pinnacle uh, moment in international summitry. But really, it is a 20th century phenomenon. It really is only once uh, it becomes easier, cheaper, and safer to travel, that summitry as a practice gets going. Before this, it is very much an ad hoc uh, and very, very extraordinary uh, event. Uh, even at the, in the beginning of the 20th century, it is an extraordinary thing. So really, truly, we're, we're looking at the latter half of the 20th century when leaders, as a matter of routine, begin getting together, and this sort of becomes established international practice and established and, if not completely routine, near routine part of the of the overall diplomatic toolkit. So, uh, Tristan, is that so? One of the things that you're defining is really the routine nature of it—the the fact that it becomes a regular part of the diplomatic uh, uh, diplomatic calendar, and that it becomes possible, basically. So I think I think it's it's important to sort of uh, categorize summitry into different types. We have the ad hoc, the one-offs that are um, things like peace conferences. Uh, again, sort of thinking of the 20th century context, something like uh, the Yalta Conference being really important, but a one-off thing. And I think this is distinctly different as a practice, as a, as a centerpiece of international politics than the more routine annual conferences, whether we're talking about the G7, the G20, 
uh, whether we're talking about the COP process or even the EU summits. These are, these are routine. These are baked into a leader's calendar. And you know, both categories are summits, but they are, they're different. Um, I think they're sufficiently different entities that we should treat them, at least you know, analytically as scholars, differently. Uh, so, I mean, just to, to follow on from that. So if they're sort of part of the, I mean, this is the danger, isn't it, really, if, if people are looking at these things. If they become a routine part of a calendar of statesmen and diplomats and others, then they become a little bit, I mean, they, they seem to become almost an end in themselves. Uh, you know, you just go to these summits because it seems to be, well, it's part of the calendar. It's a routine. It's, it's what you do. But it doesn't actually achieve much, does it? I mean, isn't that the danger that we're getting with this, the regularity of summits? I think that's a great observation and a great question. Uh, and and I, think, I think there really is that risk. The proliferation and increase in frequency of these events decreases how special they are. I, you know, what I think makes summitry really work is when it is an extraordinary thing. To really work, to sort of have that diplomatic magic it needs to be seen as a momentous moment. And if it becomes routine, just, you know, just another meeting, you lose that. You lose that sense of urgency, of specialness. It means that the incentives for those back home working away as civil servants in the bureaucracies, there's less incentive to produce something, to get an agreement that really, really matters because it's just part of the routine. It's just another meeting. This is, you know, incidentally, one of the, the things that I, I, I've been thinking a, a lot about the shift to online summitry, both sort of at the height of the COVID pandemic and now sort of in this, I don't know, what are we, late pandemic now, uh, in this period of sort of like hybrid summitry. And one of the dangers I think that we risk with moving fully to online summits is it really takes away the momentousness, the spectacle, the specialness of individuals at the top of their, their political hierarchies getting together. Because frankly, if you're just sitting at home and having a meeting online, it, it's hard to imagine anything less special, less extraordinary. Uh, than that. And so the online virtual summitry is sort of an extreme case, but we can see this uh, certainly now with a number of summits that are seen as, as quite routine. In, in the past weeks, of course, we've had the COP climate change summit. We now have, they're now at least treated as being big events every single year. And I think that this is uh, not great. I think that, you know, there really is something to be said if it's only every few years, four years, five years, because then it is something that is special. And when something's special, then extraordinary things are demanded of it. Whereas now COP just seems to be like a big annual like trade fair, just, you know, just another sort of annual circus that people show up to. And what's discussed there matters, really matters in a, in a profound existential way. And if this is our best bet for uh, addressing climate change, uh, that we no longer treat this as a special thing, I think uh, I think we're in trouble. Can I ask, Tristan? Because I I just did a a quick search on when these these three summits that that we think of most in our, in our calendar of the G seven, the G twenty, and the COP summit, 
They were COP and the G20, I think, were hanging. So COP was 1995, G20 was 1999. Um, actually, G7 was, was a lot earlier. That was 1975. But, but what you're talking about then is, is a moment where somebody says, things are really bad. We need to set up something to sort this out. And at that point, it could be a conference. And I'm thinking now of, of the Yalta conference, which, is, which was, I think, not a summit. Did, did they call it a summit? I'm not sure if they called it a summit at at the time. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, it is it is Churchill who coins the term summit ah. as summit. He, he uh, I'm of course going to forget the the quote right now, and this is the time not to forget. But yeah, here I'm, we are. I'm already, but I'm already converted, Tristan. Now, now <laughs> that you've and revealed, your listeners can, can yeah. this is like homework at home for there the listeners. There we are. But he, find you know, the he, Churchill quote that it's necessary to have a parlay at the top. So whether or not he called it a summit there and then, or it came after, I'm I'm not sure. But sorry, uh, go on. Well, then, but then, so so obviously something happened in 1975 yeah. that made the G7 think we've got to get together and talk about this in a different way. And then clearly we had this period in the 19, late 1990s where the G20 and the COP summits got set up. So so are you saying that, it, that there is a sort of there's a moment where it becomes clear that things are sufficiently bad that people need to get together and do something about it. And then the problem is that they create this thing, which is a great coming together. And then they don't really know. Like You can see what happens. Essentially, you have lots of productive discussions and they say, God, it's great to meet. We should set up loads of work streams. We should get all our civil servants and Sherpas and everybody on this. And then, and then they walk away and go on to the next thing and they leave behind a whole load of people with often random, actually unachievable tasks. And then they say, well, let's all come back together next year and see how we're all doing. I mean, is, is that what happens? <laughs> is that how we're stuck in this pattern now? Uh, the short response is yes. Summits respond to crises. When things are so bad that established uh, mechanisms for responding to, to bad things, when that's not going to work, then you call a summit. You call for a parlay at the top. Uh, the G7 begins in 1975 in response to the financial crisis, uh, crises really, of the day. Uh, it is principally at, uh, amongst finance ministers meeting at the IMF that they realize that they cannot resolve things through either through their own domestic uh, political systems or uh, sort of at the, at the multilateral level through the IMF. And so First, it's uh, finance ministers that uh, meet. There's a, it's a, a very close-knit club. Uh, at the time, it was uh, Schultz, uh, Giscard, um, who really drove the process, as well as uh, Schmidt uh, in West Germany, who then very quickly end up becoming, uh, at least in, in the case of uh, Giscard of France and, and uh, Schultz, becoming uh, heads, of, heads of government. And they get together at first what's going to be the G5 to talk about how to steer the world out of the financial crisis. This then becomes the G6 with the addition of, of Italy and then the G7 the following year with Canada. The exact same ha thing happens in the late 90s with the G20. It's also first established at the finance minister's level to respond principally to the Asian uh, financial crisis. They're, they see value in meeting. And then it's in 2008, in response to the global financial crisis, that the G20 becomes first elevated to the level of leaders. And then, of course, with the COP, it's response to the, the climate crisis. 
So it is always in response to crisis that this extraordinary uh, phenomenon is produced. But then institutions don't tend to die. They just go on. They endure. And so we end up in the situation where we find ourselves where they go on even though the crisis is over. And they also... Oh, not over. I'm interrupting you to say... What's conspicuous about things like the COP, and that's why there's been so much criticism, is that essentially they just become a means of perpetuating a discussion <laughs> about the crisis rather than saying, well, well, I don't know. Sorry. You, yeah, you and, and I think, I, I mean, I, I think what differentiates the COP, say, from the G summits is that the challenge of climate change is just so much greater, so much more difficult to not just address but get political agreement on than, say, a global financial crisis, which is not to say that a global financial crisis isn't bad, but particularly in the geosymmetry context, uh, sort of the the range of solutions is broadly agreed upon, and so they can you know, they can they can make progress on it. So these things endure, but there's also then mission creep because institutions tend not to die, and institutions sort of have a bureaucratic logic of their own, and then they grow and they grow. And this is something that I think we particularly see with the G20 that has become so enormously expansive with its engagement groups, its outreach groups, its year-long process that we are so far away from what was originally envisaged with the G7 as being a quiet, intimate, fireside chat between just a very small select group, indeed self-selected, but a select group of leaders. So coming on to the, um, coming on to the fireside chat bit because this having been a civil servant um it's it's difficult to accept but i think sometimes we have to accept it that there's there's the preparation for summits which is as you just said it's a long-term ongoing thing you have whole departments in ministries whose job is to prepare for the summit and as soon as it's finished to prepare for the next one and then this question about for me how much of what comes out of a summit is actually agreed before the summit happens between the different Sherpa teams and things. I know you've been part of those. And how much it really matters that the leaders come and have those quiet fireside chats, often over a little bit too much food and drink, um, that can be the things that tip essentially the the impossible to negotiate final declaration into something that everybody can agree with. And What's your view on that balance between the two? It's important to sort of pull apart, to disaggregate what happens at summits and sort of what the objectives are. I think a lot of scholarship, a lot of attention is placed on the formal policy negotiation process for very good reason. And this is exactly, you know, exactly as you you point out, this is the stuff that is a year-round process negotiated by the Sherpas. The Sherpas are the personal representatives of leaders who meet with one another throughout the year to plan the summit. And they're really the ones who are chiefly responsible for negotiating the summit outcome document, what's typically called the, the communique. And that's good. And that's important. It's deliberative. It is painful, painful work. And you've been involved in that Multiple times. Yeah. I, I, I have I have endured the pain. I have seen the pain. It is uh, like, you know, we, we often talk about uh, sort of how incredibly dry and dull it must be for diplomats to negotiate over 
colons and semicolons and periods and, and the language. Uh, but this really is what goes on in the Sherpa meetings, particularly the Sherpa meetings closest to the, to the leaders actually getting together and, and meeting and really just sort of signing off on what's been negotiated. So there's that process. But then there is the human element of international summits, which I think also has value but it is a you know, it, it is a different value. It's a it's a different purpose. What is important, to be frank, is not what leaders say when they're sitting around the formal summit table. Uh, particularly if we take uh, take a summit like the G twenty, we're talking about. I mean, there are tons of people in the room. It's not just the leaders. It's their sherpas. It's usually their finance minister. Um, these rooms are very very large. These aren't intimate environments. It's usually just the pre-prepared reading, uh, sorry, the reading of pre-prepared statements. What matters, what has value is what happens on the margins. It is when the meeting is adjourned, when they're having a break, when they go, uh, leaders will have quiet chats with one another in the corner. It's what we call the pull aside or the brush by, the informal bilateral. Is everybody standing in the corridors hoping to get a brush by? I mean, is, is so, there a I mean, skill to that? There is, well? there is every game imaginable being played. I mean, often, uh, particularly in the, the context of something like uh, the UN General Assembly, uh, UNGA every year in, in September, a lot of delegations don't want to meet one another at all. And so sometimes you'll have entire teams of diplomats running interference like American football players to keep their leader away from another leader. But then another, I, I won't mention names, but I've, I've seen leaders in between uh, sessions quite awkwardly just sort of standing around waiting for somebody to come their way and so that they can have a brush by with them because they really need to have a, have a, have a word. So every, every sort of like... It sounds like these, uh, these meetings that are frequently meant to occur between the American and the Iranian presidents at the United Nations. And yeah. uh, I think there was one case where the Iranian president hid in a lift or something, you know, to avoid bumping into the American president. Uh, but they were trying to organize something. But you're quite right. I mean, I think, you know, one of the, it's a bit, I was going to say, it's a bit like an academic conference, actually. You know, you don't go to an academic conference, listen to the papers. You go for the socializing and the, in the margins and talking to people and networking and building, you know, I hate to say that, but, uh, you know, there's an element of that. Yes, Ali, that, we're going to edit that bit out. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, maybe we've all lost the Collapse. Uh, <laughs> so. No, but I mean, I, I, you know, there, there, there is, there is a corollary to it. I mean, I think, and, and, uh, you know, it is true that a lot of the, the formulaic nature of, of conferences, where you get these packed speeches and people sort of give their sort of their, their, their sort of very routine and official narratives, and then behind the scenes they go off and, you know, have a, have a chat, which actually can be quite meaningful. So, I mean, I, I can see the, the, you know, we've, we said quite a bit really about how these things are not much good, but I think. Um, you know, summits, if there is a value to summits, quite apart from having these meetings, which is better to talk, obviously, than not to. Uh, but it's also the informality. It's actually the in informal aspects of it that are the best bits in some ways. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And and that's what, you know, there there are ongoing debates about whether or not summits are worth it. They're They're very, very complicated things. They're very expensive things to have. I'm of the position that they are worth it, but not because of any particular communique that's negotiated, yeah. but rather these are opportunities for individuals who otherwise wouldn't be able to speak directly without the gaze of others that are typically on them. And that's, that is profoundly important. Just thinking 
back a couple of weeks to the to the G20 summit in in Bali. I I was there. I couldn't. It's only been a couple of weeks. Maybe this says something about my memory, but like I couldn't tell you what's in the communique. But that's not to say that this wasn't an important summit. It was profoundly important. One, it allowed President Xi and President Biden to meet face to face. They met on the eve of the summit for three hours and 13 minutes. This otherwise would not have happened without the G20 summit taking place. And then the other really big important thing that happened was on uh, the, the the, the second morning of the summit after the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, had left. Uh, the Russians launched a missile barrage on Ukraine, and there was an emergency G7 summit called on the margins of the G20. This also, it just wouldn't have happened if all of these leaders, they would have had a call, they would have been online, but they were all together in the same place at the same time and able to meet and figure out what their response was going to be. So it matters. But it, you know, my position is it doesn't matter because of what's negotiated. It matters because these are opportunities for conversations that otherwise wouldn't take place. And the trouble is, is that's sort of an intangible value. And it's really hard to justify that, but, it, but it's worth it. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? Because you're not getting actually anything tangible in that. that you, you, you hope it will develop into something. But at the same time, because it's not fixed in a text, you know, there can be some room for disagreeing about what what on earth was said. I mean, you know, one of the aspects of uh, the whole nuclear negotiations that occurred really between the uh, P5 plus one in Iran was some of the most interesting discussions occurred one-to-one between John Kerry and the Iranian foreign minister. And they went privately with no one else with them. But of course, that was also hugely problematic because we don't actually know what they said to each other. And, uh, you know, one side will say, oh, well, he promised me this. And the other side said, well, you know, I they assured me of that. The problem with that is there's huge value, I would say, and I'd agree with you on that. There's huge value in the sense that you know these two individuals can sit for three hours around, around Lake Geneva and have a chat. The negative side, of course, is that nobody else really knows what they said. So it's also possibly a recipe for further disagreement down the line. I mean, there is that issue, isn't there, that you, you know, even with these communiques, of course, is that, you know, what we're doing here is we're in trying to satisfy everyone. Uh, we actually, you know, we, we, we're not, I, I, you know, I don't know whether it's, it's either simplifying something or overcomplicating something. I mean, it's, it's in one, in, in both ways, it's actually making that thing unworkable in some ways without further reflection or further discussion. I mean, it's a, I know diplomats love it in some ways. Some diplomats love it, I should say, but, uh, it's not a, um, it's, you know, I, I, I think looking at it, you have to wonder, yes, at the end of the day, you know, have have these summits become too large, you know, too enormous, and actually you could benefit from these smaller meetings uh, by having slightly, f- you know, is it less or fewer? Susanna, correct me. Uh, fewer, fewer, fewer summits. No, is it? I don't is know. It depends less? what you're going to say anyway, next. I yeah. can't guess until you finish okay, your sentence. Right. Well, don't worry. Um, <laughs> the you know having less or fewer. Uh, but slightly more intense, slightly more uh, focused on on particularly getting the right people together. I mean, presumably also getting the right people together is very important as well. Absolutely. So if we take the current geopolitical context, one thing that I worry about is that the G20 is not built for the world that we presently find ourselves in. What we need are groups with fewer people doing less. And you win star there we guest. Go. All the points. Uh, Let's uh, end the podcast there. <laughs> I won't do better than that. Um, Absolutely. This, these, these, 
these are uh, uh, the G20 works, indeed, any summit works when actors are, uh, by and large, are on the same side of a problem. This is not to say that rivals can't meet. Obviously, they do. And obviously, that has a tremendous value when, when it works. But what we have right now is, is rivalry uh, shifting to outright antagonism. And when we talk about a process that's as expansive as the G20, it's really hard to get agreement on certainly the big things that really matter when we're talking about actors at the table who not just disagree with one another on fundamental things, but are you know, outright engaged in, in, in conflict uh, with one another. And so I, I think the G20 presently is very much a product of the post-Cold War, mid to late 1990s sort of globalization or sort of zenith of globalization era where we've reached the end of history and we're all good now and we can govern globally. This was a period when then the G7 seemed like a bit of an anachronism. You know, it wasn't clear what this was for. Self-selected club of Western-focused leaders, no longer the world's largest economies. Uh, why are they continuing to meet? But now, in the the moment in which we find ourselves, I think I think these these clubs have sort of swapped positions, and the G7 has found a new lease on life. The G7 can very clearly articulate for the first time in a long time what it's all about, what it's for, and what its added value is. We've seen since the Russian invasion of Ukraine in, in February, the G7 meet either in person or online an extraordinary number of times. I, I think between February and June, the leaders met uh, six times. That's never happened before. They were focused on a single issue, wow. the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And these were leaders that all agree on some really fundamental things, that democracy is worth protecting, that the violation of a sovereign state's, well, sovereignty is against uh, international law. These are conversations that work well in a like-minded small group like the G7, but conversations that just are non-starters in a you know, far more diverse, some would say far more legitimate representative group like the G20. And so I do think that we should, well, the kinds of summits we're likely to see uh, being successful, at least in the near, near term or however long this sort of era of geopolitical stability lasts, it is going to be the groups with fewer people around the table talking about, well, fewer things. So that's really interesting because one of the things that I had a look at when I was pulling together my thoughts for this were the rotating presidencies of the G20 and the G7. And of course, the G20, which was formed in 1999, if it's got 20, then we've just come round somehow. Although, So some countries have been very patient and they've let everyone else host it. And now it's going to be their turn. And so we've got next India, then Brazil, then South Africa, I think. And that, of course, is exactly as you're saying, I mean, that is a shifting of the centre of gravity to those countries who have a very significant role to play in the shaping of how we resolve some of the conflicts that we're currently in, but who are not part of the G7 mechanisms, who wouldn't necessarily have the same conversations exactly as you've just been saying about, you know, what are we fighting for? What are our values? And, and all the rest of it. So, so then you kind of think, well, but it is it is critical clearly to get that group of countries together 
probably really important to recognise that it, it performs a completely different function from unger, which is everybody, um, and therefore necessary but difficult. And this one, I mean, it, it, you are going to have a very different set of circum- uh, conversations when they're in Brazil and South Africa, I assume. Every presidency gets to choose what the agenda is. Uh, Every presidency uh, begins with the government declaring that this summit's going to be different, this summit's going to be special, we're putting our our own brand on it. And I don't know, maybe I'm too much of a cynic, but it always ends up being the same stuff. And like, that's fine. That's all right. But it, it certainly, as we've gone through this first revolution of the G20 hosts, these were big moments for uh, the new members at the top table of global economic governance. Just thinking of, of Indonesia, uh, which currently hold, holds the presidency of the G20, this is an enormous thing. I mean, you know, uh, getting into the club and then let alone getting to host your, you know, that year's party is, you know, it, it's, it's sort of like the debutante's ball. It, it, it announces their arrival on the world stage as a leading economy uh, of significance. And that really matters. That really matters particularly for domestic politics, that a leader gets to say to their domestic constituency, and this assumes a particular uh, form of government, but look, we, or for a leader typically, I have sway on the world stage and I really matter. And, and so they, it is uh, particularly the newer entrance to, to the club that really pull out all the stops for an international summit. Uh, I wrote down the the number when I was there. I think it was the the Indonesians held 267 meetings under their presidency, which is both an indication of how expansive, how big this process has uh, gotten, but also sort of how they see uh, it and their leadership uh, within it. They want their year to be big. And you can, you know, it's easy to understand uh, why. So, so yes, every 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 country sort of uh, adds adds their distinct sort of flavor to it. Every country will uh, more or less sort of steer it uh, the agenda to issues that uh, they want. But by and large, and again, particularly because the the G twenty in terms of its remit has expanded to include just about everything. Well, everything is then on the agenda. Who, who pays for that, by the way, Tristan? I mean, so uh, Indonesia having two hundred and sixty-seven, or however many yeah. it was. I mean, are they do they stump up, or is this? Is there? A, they do do they? They pay for most of that. Yeah, or is it- the host pays for it. Um, of of course, most you know, the the travel costs are are paid by every yeah, yeah, individual yeah. member, but you know, the big bill is footed by um, by the host. Wow, that's cool. The, one of the things that's quite curious about the G seven and the G twenty is there's no secretariat. Right. There's no right. permanent. Uh, G summitry civil service or anything like that managing this. There's no permanent budget. It is sort of every leader or excuse me, every every host government every year either sets up or beefs up their summitry office. Give, to run yeah, it. so it does give an opportunity. I mean, this has to be a good thing, doesn't it? If it gives an opportunity for those who are seen, you know, the the not in the the great power system, you know, basically an ability and a, a a way to sort of access, you know, that diplomatic circuit and to do it quite effectively, really. I mean, they, they do manage to get the ear of other countries. Absolutely. And I think it's really important for, if we, we think about things like status politics, and if we, if we think about status concerns as driving um, particularly geopolitical contestation, this idea that 
a country is not being recognized with the status that they deserve. And so, you know, uh, will act in a particular way, say, that is, that is violent, that is, that is contrary to, say, international law. Um, inclusion in these summits is a way to, uh, to give status. It, we've spent a, a lot of time talking about UN Security Council reform. It's not happening and remains unlikely at this moment in time. That means that if, if that system is stuck, if that system is like stuck in 1945, you've got all these status concerns bubbling up. But one thing that I think is super uh, interesting, but also important about the G20 is in a way, well, we've had that reform. We, we've got a forum where those that believe that they should be at the top table are at, if not the top table, a top table. And I think that matters. I think that matters a great deal. Can I ask a question then? Because I think that's that's a convincing case for having the G20. What about um, if you're not invited or if you do turn up but everybody doesn't like you very much? And I was just thinking about Russia a bit. And I was noting, I mean, Vladimir Putin went to Astana in October and took part in three summits in Astana. That was the... Council of Heads of the Commonwealth of Independent States, the Russia Central Asian Summit, and the Conference on Interaction and Confidence Building Measures in Asia. So they're having a whole load of summits uh, as well. <laughs> and I suppose what what we don't want in order to, you know, if, if we're aiming for world harmony, is summit blocks developing. Yeah. Um, clearly, we see most the summits that our governments are involved in. We see least the summits that we're not involved in. Uh, how do you see the risk of summit blocks? So summits, you're always going to have them. It, it, it's inevitable. Right? It, it is, summits typically are alike actors getting together, either alike geographically, alike ideologically or politically, uh, or alike in that they are allied with respect to a crisis, whether that crisis is a war or whatnot. So you're always going to end up with a block, with a clique, really. Yeah. That can't be avoided. But if we're talking about global summitry, mm. uh, go governing a, a global process or responding to a global crisis, and actors, leaders begin opting out because it is uncomfortable for them to be there, then that has an effect on the likely efficacy of that particular summit. Yep. It's not seen as being important because it's missable. And you know, this gets back to what we were uh, discussing earlier, that the more routine these things become, then the easier it is to say, no, nah, I'm going to give this one a miss because oh, I'll just go next year or it doesn't really matter. Nothing gets, gets done there anyway. Um, so, you know, th there, there's a balance to be struck in terms of frequency and, and, and in terms of, of, you know, there's no way to extract, at least right now, a cost on a leader for not attending, at least at the global level. It might be seen domestically as not a great thing that they weren't there, or conversely, it actually might seem like a good thing that they weren't there. You know, maybe, maybe thumbing your nose at what's seen as an illegitimate or as a Western or whatever um, institution uh, you know, comes, with, comes with benefit. And any particular leader is going to, to make that calculation and, and act accordingly. Uh, but I, I mean, I've been at summits and I've seen when 
individuals are in the room and it's really awkward because nobody wants to talk to them uh, or very few people want to talk to them. And, and, and for me doing what I do in, in many ways, those are some of the most interesting moments in what is otherwise, at least in the formal meeting, can be quite uh, dull, routine and boring. I mean, just the, the thing that immediately comes to mind is uh, at the G20 summit in the wake of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And when uh, the Crown Prince MBS walked into the room and quite what his reception was. Isn't, isn't that the meeting where Putin high-fived him? That's That, that was exactly yeah. that moment. That was yeah. the meeting, yeah. So do you plot, Tristan, well, I just wondered, do you plot you know, summits of which summits are happening in, over in, in your year planner and then you can work out who's at which ones? Because there must be some sort of compulsive summit attenders um, and then others. <laughs> it's like who's most invited, who's not invited very much, um, who's invited a lot and never shows. And then there's a question, we're going to have to wrap up soon, but then there's this question as well about using summits for lobbying and sponsorship, which I know came out massively in the case of what was happening in in Cairo. So there's a lot of questions in there. Um, this can be your final summing up answer. Sure. Well, in terms of the, the, the summit calendar, I don't have the master list. I've got sort of a, a a pretty good list. And and the global summit calendar is very, very full. And again, I really worry about the proliferation of the number of summits and the increasing frequency of them, just because any given political leader cannot possibly keep up with this. It's exhausting. Uh, just thinking of, of the, these past uh, weeks, uh, the leaders had the G20, they had APEC, and they had ASEAN all one after another. It's exhausting. And, and remember, you know, in, in most cases, leaders are, are flying an awful long way. And, you know, uh, we tend to think about international politics in abstract ways, but these are it's one of the reasons I really enjoy uh, studying summits is that these are human things. And look, we're talking about people who are profoundly jet-lagged. And that has a real cost, profoundly jet lagged and having a schedule at the summit where they're constantly in and out of meetings, constantly doing bilaterals, constantly, you know, then having to go to a cultural event and have a meal and so on there. It, it is punishing and having a full schedule like this that's year round really begins to diminish the likely efficacy of any given summit let alone like the health and well-being of any given leader. And what's even, uh, you know, uh, le being a leader comes with advantages. It's their staff who, you know, I really feel for. So bef before before I let you go, I know I know Suzanne said that was your love, but I, I wanted to ask one final question from you, Jason. Give me an example in all these studying of summits that you've done and been to them and, and, and looked at them. What would your example of a successful summit be? Oh dear. The the metric <laughs> Let's finish now. <laughs> metric yeah. Yeah. I wasn't gonna ask you which is the worst. I mean all I want to ask you is basically you know, if you were to That's say far more interesting. this is a perfect, you know, this actually is a summit that worked. It had a it had a problem. People got to get it could have taken years, but you know, ultimately it came with a satisfactory solution. And I say satisfactory, I'm not saying perfect, I'm just saying satisfactory. The yardstick that I use is this. If the summit had not happened, mm -hmm. would things be the same? In other words, 
you know, would life just have carried on and yeah. we wouldn't notice? Now, often it ends up being the case, but there, there certainly are events that we can point to and say, yeah, if that summit hadn't happened, then X would not have happened or Y would not have happened. The one that actually immediately jumps to, to mind was the 2015 St. Petersburg G20. This was in the wake of the uh, chemical weapons attack in Syria. And John Kerry was there, Lavrov and he were meeting throughout, uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, Obama were meeting throughout, and Kate got an agreement on, on, on chemical weapons and what to do about Syria. We can, we should, not now, you know, debate whether or not that was a good agreement or whether it was effective or whatnot. But if they, if they hadn't been together there at that moment, I am, I am, you know, it is counterfactual argument, but nonetheless, uh, I, I don't think we would have had the agreement, certainly not as quickly uh, as, as we did. So th that matters. Uh, that, that's just one example of, of Thank of you, Tristan, very much. I feel like we, we really have, um, oh God, I was going to use some mountaineering metaphor about icebergs, but it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to draw it to a close now. Tristan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank it's you. been really terrific listening to you. I'm going to observe Summitry in a different way from now on, and we'll get you back after the next. When's the next interesting summit? Uh, next up will be the G7 in Japan. Great. That's yeah. I think we must have you back, Tristan. Thank you. Looking forward. Great to it. stuff. Bye. Thank you.